0: If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. When we take a look at the Christmas story, we often leave out what I believe is a very critical part and important part of the Christmas story. We're familiar with Luke 2, and that's the story we most often read with our children on Christmas Day. We're, we're familiar with Matthew after we get past the first dozen or so verses and uh, the focus on the wise men, but there's a part of Matthew that we very often leave out. And I believe this is, in a real sense, the heart of the Christmas story. This is the foundation of the peace that can be ours because of Christmas. And I want us today to focus on this part of the Christmas story, Matthew chapter one, the first 17 verses. Now this is a difficult part to read And so if I stumble a little bit, Andre said he would come up and help me out some of these pronunciations, but let's see how far we can get. It begins by saying, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I'm okay so far? All right. Verse two, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile in Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, uh, Shealtiel, I'm sorry, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Now you might be wondering at this point what you should be writing down. There, there are a number of important lessons that you should be learning and your, your hand ought to be writing as quickly as you can. Uh, one thing you might note is that here are some really good suggestions for baby names. And so if you're about to have a child or a grandchild, I know uh, our our college pastor, uh, Caleb and his wife are about to have a child any day, I am pulling for Shealtiel. I think that would be a good name. And uh, take it from someone whose parents were kind enough to name him Noel Deer, that your children will love you forever if you give them one of the names off this list. Uh, Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Iliad, Iliad fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathan, Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Do you notice something different there? One fathered the other, which fathered the other, until we get down to Joseph. Joseph didn't father Jesus, Joseph married Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. This this highlights the the fact that Jesus was was born of a virgin. We look to verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until Christ 14 generations. Now, that's probably not the Christmas story you will ask your kids to read on Tuesday morning, but it is an important Christmas story. I think it's interesting that when you open the New Testament, it doesn't begin with a miracle. It doesn't begin with a story. It doesn't begin with teaching. It doesn't begin with poetry or a psalm. It begins with a genealogy. And one person I read this week who, who was uh, trying to explain the significance of this genealogy said that in these words, in these verses, is everything you need to know about Christ and Christianity. And that seems hard to believe. That seems like an exaggeration. But I think if we begin to go through these, these names and we look at some of the stories attached to them, and we look at just the importance of the entire genealogy, we will discover that that is exactly true. And so so, as I studied this over the last 2 or 3 weeks and read the scripture and read what others have written about the scripture, I was able to find 15 significant what I believe are life-changing principles that we can learn from this Christmas story. Now, I'm not going to give you all 15, <laughs> I promise you, but let me give you four or five of those today uh, that I think will be an encouragement to you. Now, before we begin, uh, to get into these principles, let me just point out one more thing about the genealogy. It's interesting, as I said a moment ago, that Matthew begins with a genealogy. Uh, you also find a genealogy of Christ in Luke, Luke chapter three. But notice the important positions that Matthew and Luke place uh, the genealogy of Christ. Matthew, when he is about to announce the birth of Christ, and really write this whole story of Christ, he puts the genealogy front and center. It's as if Matthew were saying, really to understand Christ, first you have to understand his genealogy. Then you go over to Luke, and he doesn't start with the genealogy, but he gives it an equally important place. Luke tells the story of the birth of Christ all the way up to the baptism of Christ just before Christ's ministry is going to begin and then Luke pauses. It's as if Luke says, now, before we get into the ministry of Christ, there's one more thing you've gotta know. And then he gives the genealogy of Christ. A different genealogy and there are reasons for that. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss that on another day. But he gives this genealogy. It's as if both gospel writers say, this is key to really understanding uh, the person and the work of Christ. So what do we learn from this? Well, first we learn that the Christian faith is not a viewpoint now, this is the hardest one to understand but it perhaps is the most important one that's where why I wanted to begin here uh, many times we think of the Christian faith as a worldview or a philosophy or a moral code or a point of view but the Bible says that Christianity is not really any of those things if, if the If Christianity were really a matter of teaching or a way of living, then it would have begun, the gospels would have begun with teaching, do this and do that. It would have begun with gospel doctrine. It would have begun with a list of ideals, but it doesn't. Instead, we see here that the Christian faith is inseparably bound to Jesus. Jesus is is the Christian faith, and you can't separate Christ from Christianity or Christ from Christmas. Now, you're thinking, that's obvious, Pastor. We knew that Jesus was inseparably bound up with the Christian faith, but no, listen. That is not true of other religions. This is a unique thing. Take, for instance, Buddhism. So Buddhism is a religion focused on the teachings of Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama was his name. Buddha was his title. And so he had a viewpoint of the universe and how we fit into the universe and how we should live since we fit into the universe in a certain way. And so he had these teachings. And Buddhism is this worldview, this philosophy that involves the teachings of Buddha. Now. Buddha did not have to be a real person, nor did he have to live a real life for Buddhism to be true. In fact, many Buddhists do not believe that Buddha ever lived. And it really doesn't matter because Buddhism is a philosophy. It is a way of looking at life. We could go to Islam. Islam is a way for you to properly relate to the God Allah. And so Muhammad came and he taught how to relate to Allah, who he said was God. And so Islam is the way to please Allah. Now, now Islam could be true even if Muhammad had never lived. Muhammad was simply a spokesperson for this viewpoint, for this way to live uh, pleasing to Allah. Allah. Now, uh, Muslims would be quick to point out that Muhammad was a real person, and perhaps he was, but the, f- the faith, the religion of Islam does not depend upon Muhammad being a real person. It's just a way that you can live. Christianity is very different. Christianity is not so much about what Jesus Christ taught as it is about what Jesus Christ did. You see the difference? You can have Islam without Muhammad. You can have Buddhism without Buddha. You cannot have Christianity without Christ because it's not a worldview. It's not a way of thinking. It's not even a list of rules. Christianity is about what Jesus did for us. And so when the gospel is pre- presented to us, it doesn't start with do this, don't do this. This is the way to view the world. It starts with there was a baby. And he was a real flesh and blood baby, born to a real flesh and blood family at a real point in history. And he lived a sinless life and he died on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sins. It is, it is inseparably bound to Christ. Now, why, why is that so important? Uh, well, well, we see its importance even early in the, in the gospel of, of Luke when uh, the angels came to announce to the shepherds the birth of Christ, what did they say? They did not say today in the city of David, a teacher is born to you. Is that what they said? No, they announced to the shepherds today in the city of David, a savior has been born to you. See, because we're guilty of sin. And in our guilt for sin, we're all guilty. We don't primarily, primarily need to be educated or reformed, or enlightened, or motivated. We don't need to just sin 20% less. We don't just need to have a different perspective on sin. No, we need somebody to come and pay for our sin. And that's what Jesus did. You see, that's why Jesus had to be a real person. That's That's why we need a savior. That's why the angel said a savior is born to you today. We don't primarily need a new moral code, a list of rules, a new understanding, a better perspective. We need a substitute. I need somebody to die for me. And that's what Jesus came to do. And so the first thing we learn when we study this, this genealogy is that the Christian faith is inseparably bound up with Jesus. We, to be a Christian, Does it mean that you believe most of Christ's teachings and you try to adhere your conduct to what he says? No, no, that would make Christianity a teaching. To be a Christian means that you accept what he has done for you by being born as a man, by living a sinless life and dying on the cross. Uh, for, as our substitute for the payment of sin, now the second thing we learned from this uh, from this genealogy is that Jesus came to redeem everybody. Jesus came to redeem all people now i don 't know if you know uh, there are uh, forty two really forty one people listed here, uh, two of them we don 't know anything about so there are thirty nine that have history that that we could talk about i don 't know how many of the thirty nine people you you, you see, listed here in Matthew chapter one. I don't know how many of these people you know their story, but the stories are pretty interesting. Uh, there are some some people here that you would expect to be here, some great godly men and women, and then there are some people in this genealogy that really we're quite surprised that God would want to be associated with. And, and I'll give you a few of them. Uh, I'll, I'll keep this uh, uh, PG. I shared some of this with. Uh, the Rotary Club on Wednesday and was able to be a little bit more explicit, but I know we've got kids in here, but so let me just sort of give you a flavor of who, of who's in this genealogy. Uh, For one, there is a woman by the name of Tamar. Uh, Generally, Jewish genealogies would not include any women, Uh, but uh, God chose to put six women in this genealogy. Uh, Of course, there are women in every person's genealogy, right? I mean, everybody's got a mom, but uh, they would not list those women. They were not significant enough in the minds of the culture uh, to list in somebody's genealogy. But God looks at things differently. And and God sees men and women of equal value. And so there are women in this uh, genealogy. So one of them's name is Tamar. Uh, She is the first woman mentioned. Uh, She was the wife of one of Judah's sons. Uh, her husband died before she was able to have children, and in those days, if that happened, then uh, the deceased man 's brother would marry uh, the widow so that she could have children. and so um, Onan uh, uh, decided to marry her, uh, but he was not very happy about it, and so uh, he made sure that in this new marriage that she was unable to conceive and we won 't go through the details, but you can read them in genesis 38. Uh, God then kills Onan. Isn't this a great story? And so then there's a third brother. His name is Shelah. And he says, I'm not going to have anything to do with this. (laughs) I mean, husband one is dead. Husband two is dead. I'm not going to be husband three. So he backs out of the picture. And so Tamar is frustrated. Uh, She wants to have children. So she uh, pretends to be a prostitute. She sells herself in secret to her father-in-law uh, she conceives a child, then she has a reveal party. You know, today, oftentimes when ladies get pregnant, they have this big reveal. Uh, well, it goes all the way back to Genesis. And so she had the most scandalous reveal party. If you're looking for ideas uh, ever recorded in history. And so she reveals, it's a big controversy. The nation is shaken over this. And, and, and God puts that right in the middle of Jesus's uh, genealogy. Now, I think two things when I see that. First of all, doesn't that make you feel a little bit better about your own family? I mean, let's just be honest. So secondly, I, I am surprised that, that, that she would be included. I mean, God could have just left her out, right? I mean, many, many of the other women have been left out. We'll see in a moment or two that many of the men have been left out. God could have just left her out. But it's as if he wanted to advertise the fact that Tamar was a part of the genealogy Jesus. Why is that? Well, we'll see in a moment, but I'll give you some others. There's the story of David and Bathsheba. And you know that story, the adultery and conspiracy for murder. Uh, Ruth is uh, listed. Ruth was a Gentile. That surprised people. Rahab was a prostitute. Jeconiah uh, was, was sinned so greatly that God cursed him and all of his Ancestors, And there's a whole interesting story there that if we had extra time, I would tell you, but we don't. Uh, and then Hezron and Aram, uh, they're two people in the genealogy that are so obscure, we don't know anything about them. So there's some nobodies in this genealogy as well. Why would God include all of this? This genealogy is filled with people who are unworthy, unclean, and unfit. Why? Because God wants us to know that Jesus came to save all kinds of people there's not any person here there's not any person listening on television watching online there 's not a person in America who is not eligible for the forgiveness of christ and and God communicated that to us very purposely by including just about every kind of imaginable sin on the list of people that were in christ 's genealogy it's as if it's as if God is 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 waving a flag and saying my son came to save and to forgive every sin if you uh, will call on me. Uh, We we just need to know when we read the genealogy that Jesus came to redeem all people. Now the third thing we see here very quickly is God uses all circumstances to accomplish his, his purpose. So if you read through this genealogy from the perspective of history, and I tried to do this some this week, and I'm not an an expert on on Old Testament history, but but the best I could in my mind, I tried to step through history as I know it from the Old Testament uh, from the perspective of the genealogy. You know, there are a lot of things that happen in history, but if you just take the narrow thread of this genealogy as it runs through history, and just imagine God made a promise in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham that, that God would bring the Messiah through Abraham's offspring. Okay, so the promise was given uh, and, and, and the wait really begun. And so we, we, you start to look at this history. It seems like several places through history that God's plan just completely ran off the rails. Uh, you could see it to start with, just with Abraham. So God told Abraham He was going to, you know, bring this great nation through Abraham's offspring, and ultimately the Messiah who would be the blessing to all the world. And, and then, you know, what happened? Abraham and his wife Sarah couldn't have kids, and, and it's like God, you, you made this promise and all these big plans, and just—I mean, even before it gets started, it's just collapsed. It can't happen. And it wasn't until very late in Abraham and Sarah's life when they were well, well, well past childbearing years and it was a surprise to them and everybody else, God gave them a child. And so uh, the prophecy continued. And then, like I said, there were several times just as you go through history when it looked like this whole thing had blown up on God. You, you get to the story of David and Bathsheba, and, and you know that story. And, and then there was this affair, and, and then there was conspiracy for murder, and then the child died. And, and you, just, you just think, well, God, it's, it, it's blown up now. But no, God found a way. And then Jeconiah, if I had time to tell you the story, and God said, you know, you sin so greatly that none of your ancestors can be, and all this. But God... There's a way, there's a way. And so the lesson we learn from this is that God will work through every circumstance to accomplish his purpose in your life. Don't give up on God. He hasn't given up on you. And know that everything that happens, the, the bad news from the doctor, the uh, the good news about some promotion, the bad news about losing your job, the, the, the struggles in your family, the struggles at work, the struggles at school, everything, God's going to use everything. It, it, is, it is almost unimaginable. All the things in the Old Testament God used in order to get history to this One point in Matthew chapter one, and God's doing the same kind of thing in your life. He's using all of these factors to bring you to the place he wants to bring you. Isn't isn't that an encouragement? I keep thinking in my mind back to the Christmas story in Luke, and I know that's not where we're focused, but there's just a perfect illustration of this over there. God had prophesied some 600 years, 650 years prior to this that, uh, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so then Mary uh, conceives through the Holy Spirit and she's with Joseph and she's about to have children. She's about to have Jesus rather. And there's a problem. You know what the problem is? They're not in Bethlehem. They're in Nazareth, about 90 miles from Bethlehem. 90 miles was a long ways. you you think about just uh, you and your pregnant wife um, hiking to I don't know, what's 90 miles away? Uh, the, the other side of Tyler or something. I mean, that'd be a heck of a hike. And so uh, they're, they're this far away, and, and they don't really even have any desire to go to Bethlehem. It's not that Mary and Joseph were all clued in to, you know, we're about to have the Messiah, and the Bible says in Micah, and we've got to get to Bethlehem. They, they were just going to have the baby in Nazareth. So what did God do? Well, God, and, and, and the wheels of this had already started moving years before. God caused Rome to tax the whole known world at the time and to prepare for that tax to have a census. And so this is, like I said, had been in works for years. And so then everybody has to go to their hometown. And so uh, Joseph takes Mary and goes to Bethlehem in order to be counted in the census, in order to be faithful to the tax. And all of that happened at the exact right time. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem without a day to spare. Isn't that amazing? God taxed the whole world to move two teenagers 90 miles and so that the prophecy would be exactly fulfilled. Don't think that God can't use what you're going through right now to accomplish his purposes in your life. Don't be frustrated. Don't throw up your hands and give up. God's going to use it. And we see that here in this, in this genealogy. The, 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 what am I on? Number four, very quickly. Uh, Jesus... Is the Jubilee now? If you look back at Matthew chapter one, verse seventeen, that's that just seems like an odd verse. I will read it again. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen, from David to the exile fourteen generations, and from the exile uh, to Babylon until Christ fourteen generations. Well, so what? Who cares? What, what, why is that? Well, let, let's talk about that. Th- this is important. First of all, you should know that it there weren't actually. Fourteen generations from Abraham to to the exile. The the, the three fourteens are not. Correct in the way that we would measure correctness. Now, the Bible is perfect. I'm not questioning the Bible. I'm just saying that we read this in a literal way that the the Jewish people would not have read. They knew that there weren't literally 14, 14, 14 generations between Abraham and Christ, and they knew the names because all of that's in the Old Testament. So this isn't an error, and it's not uh, an attempt to deceive. Uh, the, the Jewish people, and Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. They knew exactly how many how many generations there were. But, but Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, organized, he telescoped some of the generations, and he organized this into this model, 14, 14, 14. Now, uh, when I said the Bible is, of course, true, let me just say something, because I don't want you to be confused about that. The word translated fathered, in, in my Bible here. Your Bible might say begat. That word doesn't just mean that you fathered like I fathered Hannah. Uh, it could also mean that you grandfathered or you great-grandfathered. It, it, it refers to a forefather uh, that you've had. So, so there's some telescoping here, but it's all been arranged in this 14, 14, 14. Why is that? Well, let me give you a warning. We have to be really careful. When we start interpreting numbers in the Bible. And and whatever conclusion we come to has got to be affirmed and confirmed by other things in the Bible. Now, the reason I say that is because there are just some nutty people out there uh, who, um, who, who, who preach in churches sometimes who have gone through and they've taken numbers and they've come up with the most fascinating interpretations that aren't anywhere confirmed in Scripture. We cannot do that. But the numbers are important. And as long as we interpret them in a way that is uh, uh, congruent with what we see in the other parts of the Bible, we can learn from these. So what do these numbers mean? 14, 14, 14. Well, let's do a little math. So 14 is two sevens, right? You got that? Seven plus seven is 14. And so three fourteens is how many sevens? Anybody know? That's six sevens, all right? I know it's Sunday, you're, you're off of school, but you can think about this. So 14, 14, four, there were 14, three sets of 14 generations. That's six sets of seven. Now, seven is a very important number in the Bible. Do you know some things about seven? God rested on what day? Seventh day. In the 10 commandments, God said to take one day and make it holy. Which day was that? The seventh day. Uh, we, we read in Leviticus um, uh, chapter 24, 25, that, that they were to take their land, uh, their farming land, and they were to plant it for six years in a row. And then on the seventh year, they were to allow it to lie fallow, to not use it in order for it to replenish, the soil to replenish so that they could begin the six-year series of planting. So this seven it re- really marks perfection. It's the end. It's the, it, it's the time of rest. It's It's everything is done, it is is seven. That's what it stands for in the Bible. So with that in mind, you see that there are six sevens. Jesus then is the what? He is the seventh seven. The seventh seven. Now that's significant. For a couple of reasons I want to show you. First, it's significant because it tells us that that Jesus is the culmination of everything we've seen in the Old Testament. I mean, you read the Old Testament, there are all these stories, and honestly, some of them seem sort of kooky. And and you read through and you wonder, well, why is that story there? Why is this Tamar story? It's like the weirdest story in the whole Bible. Why is all this stuff here? And this nation is attacking this nation, and this person fathers this person, and, 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 and all of this intrigue. Why is all that there? All of that points to Jesus. See, Jesus is the culmination of all of history. And and so you look in the Old Testament and all these things are coming together. There's seven, 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 and then Jesus is the seventh, seven. Jesus is the culmination of everything that happens in the Old Testament. It all points to Christ. You know, the first hundred days next year are really the first, Be more than that, we're going to do five days a week for 20 weeks. We're all going to read the Bible together. And so if you've not signed up for this, there is a card in your worship bulletin uh, that looks like this. I hope you will fill this out, leave it in your seat when you leave today, or you can put it in one of these wooden boxes that you'll see at the doors and just say, hey, I want to be a part of this hundred days. What we're going to do is we're going to read through much of the Bible, the whole Bible story in hundred days. It's not a whole lot to read every day. Everybody can do it. And we're going to see how all this comes together to point people toward Jesus. We're going to start on Monday, the 31st of December. And so I hope you'll take a chance to sign up for that. Hundreds of people have, and we're thankful for that and looking forward to it. And so Jesus being the seventh seven tells us that all of the Old Testament culminates in Jesus. But you know, there's another thing that, that I believe it, uh, it, it, it teaches us. After the seventh seven... So if you go back to Leviticus 25, and I'm going to to condense a lot of history here for time, but if you go back to Leviticus 25, you see that they would would have seven periods of seven. So six years of planting, one year of fallow. Uh, Six years of planting, one year off. But then after they had seven sevens, then the next year, what happened after the seventh seven, they had the year of jubilee. You ever heard that? The year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was a great year. Let me tell you what happened. It was an entire year of rest. How many of you would like to have a year of rest? Uh, All loans were canceled. All debts were satisfied. How many people would sign up for that? All slaves were freed, and everyone returned to his homeland that God had provided. This was the year of Jubilee. In fact, it was so radical, just to be honest, Old Testament historians, many people believe that the Jews never did it. I mean, they were commanded to do it, but it was so radical. I and mean, you can imagine every seven years, all debts are forgiven. Everybody goes back to their homeland, even if they, even if they had sold it or lost it, and all slaves are free. And this was a radical concept that there would just be a year of peace and rest and harmony and stability that they may have never even attempted it. But it points to something. It points to what it is to be a child of God after Jesus have lived his life and died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, we, the whole Testament is about them striving uh, in, in their sacrifices and their living. And, and Jesus comes and he is the culmination of that, the seventh seven. And then after the life of Christ and he makes possible our salvation... Now we can have rest in Jesus. Uh, read Hebrews chapter four; the whole chapter uh, about this. Uh, l- listen to what Jesus said in, uh, in in Matthew chapter eleven. He says, "Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest." What does it mean to know the rest? of Christ to have this, this rest that comes from having a relationship with God. It means you don't have to earn God's love anymore. It's a rest. You have God's love. If you've accepted Christ because of what Christ has done, it means you don't have to prove yourself. Christ proved himself for you. It means that you can rest in his care and trust him. You know, as a Christian, we, we shouldn't have any worries in the world. My future is secure by the work of Christ. My God loves me because of the work of Christ. I, I, I'm not in control of all the circumstances around me and all of the medical stuff and the family stuff and the financial stuff and the political stuff and the football stuff and all the things we worry about. But listen, God is in control, and I can rest in that. Jesus here's what the genealogy says he's He's the source of jubilee. He is the seventh, seventh, and after Jesus, as we put our trust in him, we know true rest. Now, one last thing that you see that I want to show to you in this uh, genealogy is that God always keeps his promises. It's interesting. If you go back to Genesis 12, and I know we're covering a lot of Bible history today, but if you go back to Genesis 12. Let me just read to you the beginning of the promise. And God repeated it throughout uh, the book of Genesis to Abraham, uh, or, or through about six different chapters. But, but let me just read this to you. Genesis 12, two and three, God says to Abraham, I will make a great, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. So you're going to have, you know, a son and son and son. It's going to become a great nation. And ultimately, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Uh, Genesis 17, 4, as for me, here's my covenant with you, God says. You will become the father of many nations. Genesis 18, 18, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. God promised, listen to this to bring the Messiah through Abraham. The problem though, listen, is God promised it and it didn't happen. For 2,000 years, they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And they thought, every generation thought, now the Messiah will come. Now the Messiah will come for 2,000 years. And many people at that point, thought that God will never keep his promise. The Messiah will never come. The savior will never come. But you know what the genealogy tells us? It is a living illustration that God always keeps his promises. And so 2,000 years and what happens? God keeps his promise, Jesus is born. God takes the long view of things but he always keeps his promise. And if you're waiting on God for something, you're waiting on God for the marriage. You're waiting on God as you're praying for somebody to come to know him as their savior. You're waiting on God. You're, you're, you're frustrated maybe because it seems like God has forgotten you. Let, let, the, let the genealogy of Christ speak to you this morning and let it be a reminder, God always keeps his promises. Isn't that an encouragement? that's what the genealogy means. When I make a promise, God says, I will keep it. I'll show you just one more thing with this promise. So when you you start adding up Bible history years, uh, it gets a little bit complicated and, and we can't always nail it down to the exact year. But do you know, and I just told you, so you do if you're paying attention, do you know how many years between the promise of Genesis 12 and the fulfillment in Matthew chapter one. How many years between Genesis 12 and Matthew one? 2,000, all right, for the four of you who are paying attention, Uh, it was was 2,000 years. Now we don't know exactly, give or take 50 years, but I mean, we're pretty close. Give or take less than 50, maybe like 42, but, 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 but there's some speculation there. But it was about 2,000 years. And so they all, I mean, people were thinking it will never happen. 2,000 years later, it happened. Now let's count some more years. So there was another promise given in the ministry of Christ and then again in the ministry of Paul. So you can pick your start date there. And Jesus said, I'm coming back. Now people believe that. In, in, in those days, the Christians thought it was going to happen like Tuesday. I mean, they, I mean, you read what Paul wrote and Peter wrote. They thought, I mean, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Mean, they woke up every day. You know, where, where is he? Where is he? How are we going to be today? I mean, let's go ahead and eat dessert now because we, you know, we may not make it to the, to the end of the meal. But you know, over the years, people have become less and less certain that that was going to happen. And today, I mean, even amongst Christians, faithful Christians, yeah, the return of Christ, I mean, I believe it'll happen because the Bible says it, but I'm gonna go about my life. I mean, it doesn't look like it's gonna be anytime soon. Well, you know how many years it's been since Jesus made the promise, and today, about two thousand years. Now, I'm not making a prediction, okay? And I'm not saying, you know, that, that go home and eat your dessert and hurry. But um, I'm just saying that about the time they had given up on the first promise. It was about 2,000 years and there was Christ. God always keeps his promise. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be just like God that about the time everybody's forgotten the second promise, about 2,000 years, give or take 50, that Jesus would just come right back. When we read the genealogy, it reminds us, Jesus is real and our faith is inseparably bound up with him. And that Jesus has come to rescue all of us. And that he keeps his promise as he works through every circumstance of our lives. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. Father, I pray this Christmas for those people who don't know you as their Savior that this Christmas will be the beginning of that relationship. I pray that they will recognize this isn't about a teaching, a philosophy, a list of rules. No, it's about Jesus who was born and who lived and who died. And I must accept what he's done for the forgiveness of my sins. I don't primarily need a a lesson, a rule. I need a sacrifice. I need a substitute. I need a savior. And I pray that people right here hear my voice, that they'll respond to that. and They'll ask you to be their savior, to ask Jesus to be their savior. Father, for those of us who know you as our savior, let this genealogy remind us that you always keep your word and we can rest in that. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.